this is the order of operations. You've got a molded sole, which is sewn down to your midsole. You've got an inner vamp, which is sewn to your outer vamp. And then before the inner vamp is put in, you sew the molded sole to the outer vamp and then put the inner vamp inside. So you're puncturing that outer vamp when you put a molded sole on, um, but then you're sealing that again on the inside with the inner vamp. Shoecast! Welcome back to the first episode of Season 9 of the Stitch Down Shoecast, where we talk quality footwear, how it's made, and all the things we love about it. Season 9. Good work, us. I'm Ben from stitchdown.com, and today I'm talking with Luke Colby, who's coming up on his first year as a co-owner and CEO of Berlin, Wisconsin-based Russell Moccasin, one of the great American bootmakers of all time, worn by Winston Churchill, U.S. presidents, and Harrison Ford, who really should have been a U.S. president for real, not just in a plane movie. In August 2022, Luke and his business partner, Joe Julian, became only the fourth owners in Russell's illustrious 125-year history, and since then have embarked on a mission of conservation through craft that has seen some changes alongside plenty of blessed stay-the-damn-sameness. I'm beyond excited to talk to Luke about all of it, and if you're listening to this in podcast form, we'll also have this episode up on our at Stitchdown YouTube channel with Luke in the Russell Workshop in Wisconsin, so that may just be worth checking out, unless you're currently driving in a car. In which case, just keep safely listening. Before we get rolling, I need to give a special ShoeCast shout-out to our sponsor this week, Standard & Strange which is where all of Japan's finest boots just seem to end up these days. Check out the lineup and sign up for their very good newsletter at standardandstrange.com. Also, if you love boots, shoes, the makers who create them, and the community who loves them as much as you, you should seriously consider coming to Stitchdown's Bootcamp, the biggest bootmakers and community event ever. I'm pretty sure. Why not? Happening this October 6th and 7th in Brooklyn, New York. We're rounding up a global crew of our favorite makers for a true world's fair of boots and shoes where you can learn more than you ever thought possible, get expertly sized, and spend time with the people behind some of the greatest footwear in the world, including Russell Moccasin. And among the more than a dozen brands currently booked, Nick's Boots, Grant Stone, and Viberg will be hosting their yearly archive, aka sample sale, at Bootcamp. Tickets are available on stitchdownbootcamp.com right now. Get $10 off any already nicely affordable ticket. Discount code SHOECAST, surprisingly. Can't wait to see you all in October. All right, let's do this. Luke Colby, CEO of Russell Moccasin. Welcome to the SHOECAST. How was that drive from Birmingham that you just did up to Wisconsin? What are you wearing on your feet today? Man, the drive is brutal. Uh, every time I do it, I wonder why, but uh, it, you become a little bit more familiar with it. You go through about 17 different seasons and about two hurricanes in Kentucky and, you know, you make it out the other side. So it's amazing how far you can get in a day on the road. Uh, but yeah, made it up here uh, late last night and got to work today. And uh, I, I'd swapped up my my shoes on you this afternoon, Ben. So Right now, I'm wearing a uh, a loafer. This is a uh, Lactahavia sold uh, version of our, used to be called a C71 pattern at Russell, but it's a, a loafer that we've been producing for a very long time. But uh, I found one in one of our old catalogs and wanted to try to recreate that. So we've been working on readjusting the patterns back to the original one from the 1920s. What's the difference? The difference is at some point in time, 
they decided that it looked better to have rather than a straight line from the heel to the toe and rather than doing the overlap stitch they did a butt stitch on a lot of our loafers and they had it where it was almost rectangular up until you got to the toe piece or the plug and then it swooped down towards the toe and i, I can't stand that look at all I, I like a nice clean transition so it's uh it's been a work in progress to to get that that line back on there and this is close there's still a few more improvements need to be made but they're comfy so that's what's on my feet so what does development on something like that look like at russell which is as old school as places get like i can't imagine you're doing it in cad or something like that it, we're, we're not running a cad program i i can work in cad and i do a lot of work in cad uh, on our dies and some of that stuff but uh the way that russell works is we've got pattern sets that uh, are typically either a, a hardy board uh, pattern with a brass edge, and those date back most of those towards you know, pre-1930. And then we've got patterns that are steel steel rule die uh, patterns, and then those are, are cut up in Canada for us. We still cut, I would say, 90% of the parts at Russell all with a, a leather knife uh, rather than on a clicker because every set of patterns, you can't just trim off the excess because it all has to match up on top of that shoe. And so we end up having to have a lot more patterns uh, for the various sizes and widths that we make. And so um, development wise, we typically take one of our current patterns. And so in this case, it was dropping down the front to create that, that curvature towards the toe piece and trying to judge how much, because obviously when you get to the toe piece here, this all gets trimmed by hand, um, and then the shoemaker is going to use his judgment on how much to pull that up, and different leathers are going to stretch at different rates. So it's not always uh, an exact science, but that's part of being hand-lasted. And so um, we've gotten it pretty well judged now where we dropped the front here of the shoe by about three-eighths of an inch uh, and left the heel where it was, and that, that kind of creates that smooth line from heel to toe that, that we were looking for. You make five or six pairs of shoes and I have a bunch of ugly iterations that I'll never see daylight, but that's how it works. And I noticed you switched to the loafers so you could easily pull them off as opposed to the time consuming process of. Oh yeah. Otherwise I'd be down here, you know, grumbling and the sporting class chuckers aren't that bad. It's, it's uh, three eyelets. So. so one year ago, you did not run an incredibly historic boot brand or even really work at all in footwear. Now you do all those things. How did all this come about and what drew you to Russell Moccasin? One year ago, I was a free man. <laughs> uh, yeah, anniversary. You know, it, it's funny because when you look back on things, there's a lot more connections uh, over time than it feels like in the moment. A lot of times when something like this comes up, um, the short and the long of it is that uh, in July of last year, uh, myself and my business partner, Joe Julian, uh, had been friends with the folks from Russell, the family that owned it uh, for for many, many years. And in Joe's case, um, he and his dad, you know, they had always known the folks from Russell. And so uh, we do a lot of the same events. We would go, uh, I own another company called Kingfisher Leatherworks, and we manufacture luggage. And so we do uh, a lot of sporting clays bags. We make a lot of gear for outdoorsmen. And that drew us to the same places, the same events as Russell Moccasin. And it drew Joe, too. I mean, Joe Julian, um, their family owns Julian & Sons, fine woodworking in Arkansas. They build gun rooms, high-end kitchens, all stuff uh, like that all over the world. And so they were same clientele. So all three of these businesses were 
<laughs> mixing and mingling and, and becoming friends over many years. And uh, the family that had owned Russell since uh, 1928 uh, was the you know, Bill Gustin and then his son-in-law, Lefty Fabricius, who was the CEO when all this came about. And Lefty, like his father-in-law, Bill Gustin, uh, was 92 years old and uh, was running this company. And he, great man. Um, but when you get to 92, there's a lot less traveling. There's a lot less things that you can do. And so he and his daughter and son who worked with him in the business um, were trying to figure out, you know, what does the future look like? And they didn't necessarily want to run the business without him. And so they reached out to us, uh, so to Joe Julian and myself, and we came up and looked at the business and kind of took stock of the challenges that a 125-year-old company that hasn't moved buildings since 1946 has. Years ago when I came up and I, I was friends with Russell and I would come up and visit them, when I drove through and I came through as a customer, somebody who had ordered boots, and I, I brought a pair of my great-grandfather's boots from the 1940s up here to, to get you know, just kind of conditioned, uh, some stitching redone and some things like that. And I was walking through the shop right behind me, looking at all the old Puritan machines that were from the 1800s. And it's like, wow, you know, this place, this place hasn't changed. Like, it's just such a, like stepping back in time. And then when you look at that as a business person that's about to take over that company and uh, trying to build its future, you're like, holy crap, nothing has changed here in so long. Like, we've got to replace that and that machine's not safe. And you know, just all sorts of things like that. It's a completely different perspective. And so, yeah, in, in July and August of last year, uh, we went through that process with the Fabricius family and with Joe Gagne, who stayed on as our business partner. Uh, he's been the COO and he's been running operations here at Russell for the better part of 30 years. And so we're lucky to have the team that we had to have everybody stay and uh, now get to work together to, to build the future for Russell. Um, I started Kingfisher in middle school, and I, I did it mainly out of the love of making things that I couldn't otherwise afford. Uh, I shot competition trap and skeet for many years. Uh, I made traditional longbows, and so leatherworking was kind of an a attachment to those passions. I grew up kind of in the Cabela's Bass Pro sort of range of product and, and looking at those sorts of things, and, and I, I quickly realized seeing what my dad grew up using and my grandfather ended up using, you know, hunting dove and quail in Southwest Georgia, that the products that they were used to using that they had had for 30 years and had gotten them this far in their life um, were not the same products that, that you could buy at Cabela's or Bass Pro. And I found myself purchasing the same products over and over and over again. So I started making products and, uh, and that's kind of a hand-stitched product for several years uh, very similar to to producing some of the footwear that we do. Um, so in that sense, there were some similarities. And as we got further along with Kingfisher and, and kind of larger scale production, the nice thing about bags that you don't have, that, that, that is not nice in shoes, is that when I make a bag, it's one bag, and it's the same bag whether you're, uh, you know, 6'10", or whether you're five foot nothing. And uh, that's not so in footwear. I mean, the amount of variations that we produce, the scaling, uh, the amount of pattern work, uh, all those things are insanely more complicated. In the shoe world, um, the most similar thing we produced as far as sizing-wise was belts. And you're only dealing with one dimension, which is length. 
But there's a lot of similarities there too. I mean, I think some of the similarities come in materials and, and understanding materials, understanding machinery, uh, understanding the actual creating of uh, those designs and how things fit together. The volume aspect of footwear is, is something that I'm still studying and learning and, and trying to, to figure out because it's, it's amazing to me. Uh, the differences, the last shapes and how that relates to you know, the foot. It's not easy. I mean, just the fact that no two people have the same feet. No one person has the same two feet. Uh, my wife is a physical therapist, and so we have lots of arguments over, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not bad arguments, but just talking about uh, footwear and zero drop versus heels versus all these different things and trying to figure out. Footwear, I think, is is very interesting compared to luggage and cartridge bags and belts and things like that because it's the way that your body interfaces with the ground. And so the way that your body is reacting to the materials that are around your foot, heat and uh, you know, how your foot swells during the day. Uh, there's so many factors and that's, that's fascinating to me because I don't think any other uh, part of leatherworking deals as directly with how your body actually contacts with, uh, you know, walking or, or, you know, touching. I mean, I guess the most similar thing would be gloves. Yes. Which also never necessarily fit my particular thumbs. Very complex. Yeah. Which is interesting that we have a saying that, you know, fit like a glove doesn't always fit that way. Well, the good ones, I guess. They were probably all completely custom when they came up with that saying. They were. Believe it or not, uh, Frank Russell Glove Works was the largest hand-sewn glove maker in the world at one point in time, uh, way back when, when the two companies, Frank Russell Glove Works and uh, W.C. Russell Moccasin, ended up dividing into two companies. Wait, tell me more about that. I don't, I don't think I knew about that. Will Russell had an older brother, Frank, their father was Charles, and they worked for uh, a local uh, glove maker here in Berlin for many, many years. And eventually, Frank Russell decided to, to take his knowledge in the glove industry and create a different product line than the company they were working with. And so he created Frank Russell Glove Works. And W.C. Russell Moccasin Company was born out of a shed attached to that building. Uh, Will Russell worked with his brother, Frank, for many years Apparently, uh, the way that Russell Moccasin started was he was making moccasin slippers and boot liners uh, out of the back side there. And, and so uh, mainly for, for kids, like kids' boots, kids' little baby moccasins, and eventually had so much demand for that that people wanted him to create other moccasin footwear. And that's how Russell started. So Russell, at one point in time, was the smaller of the two companies by a long shot. Is the glove operation still going? It burned. And then uh, machine-sewn gloves eventually took the business away. At that point, Frank Russell and, and W.C. Russell Moccasin Company had long been two different businesses and uh, kind of fizzled out back in the day. I'm just glad they're still in, you know, uh, position to make boots. Me too. Me too. You mentioned Joe Gagno, longtime Russell production manager, who has stayed on amidst the transition. How crucial has that been? And what have you learned from Joe? Joe is uh, he's one of my favorite people. Uh, he's an old crotchety northerner, and, and uh, I say that with a lot of love and respect. And, uh, but he's, he's a great guy, and, and you know, he and I met years and years ago when I was uh, a little bit younger, not, <laughs> not much younger, but uh, he and I became friends, and, and it's, it's funny. Uh, I've always grown up with guys two and three times my age. We, we just had a natural friendship. It, it didn't seem... Uh, that different to me. And now working together, it's really funny because, 
you know, I obviously recognize the age difference. We have a great camaraderie and a great work relationship, but he's really the whole reason that I got involved in Russell. Uh, if he hadn't been around, if he hadn't been willing to stay on, I mean, we, we would not be involved in, in Russell at all. He's one of those people that his family's been in the leather industry, and his grandfather was one of the first uh, shoemakers at Russell Moccasin Company back in the 1920s. Growing up his whole life in this industry, that amount of knowledge and expertise in this, uh, specifically in the technical side of it and the production, uh, is something that I never would have gotten involved with Russell if I didn't have him to kind of lead the ground effort here. It's an interesting way to frame it. I mean, there's one guy and you know him, you understand what he knows and he knows everything. Yeah. And it would be foolish to do it without him. That said, if your goal is to preserve the history and really most importantly, the craft that Russell Moccasin represents, passing on those skills and techniques and knowledge is essential. How do you do that? How do you make more Joes? That's uh, that's my next challenge. You know, a lot of what we've been doing at Russell is is kind of prioritizing and and dealing with the primary problems, the the biggest things first. Um, and the first thing that we had to get right was the business model. And Russell has been operating the same way in a very small market for a very long time. And so we had to to figure out, you know, what that's going to look like going forward, what the product line is going to look like. And as with any business, over time you end up getting more complex and it takes simplification to, to be able to figure out, take away all the stuff that you're doing that somebody else does better than you and figure out what you do best and focus on that. Joe is, is going to be with us for, for as long as it takes, but I, I want to make sure he can retire in peace <laughs> sooner rather than later. So in order to do that, it's finding the right person. And so we're trying to build up the team around him that can support the production side. Finding that right person who is passionate about footwear that's that's the key and so that's a search that's ongoing and if there's anybody listening to this bootcast that that really loves footwear and wants to move to the north woods give us a shout finding that right person is a make or break thing and as you well know you have to have a passion for this type of product to be in the space because there's a whole lot of easier products to make widgets and gadgets that come together on assembly lines with perfectly machined parts and that doesn't exist and this type of footwear, controlling an artisan process. And that's what Joe is great at because he's lived it, but it's something that's hard to train. And so we're, we're figuring out that, that process. I mean, ultimately it just kind of seeps inside you and the trick is to get it out of that person, right? And kind of disperse it and like not be too greedy with an exceptional amount of knowledge. There's so many minute details of the process that rest with our boot makers, that rest with our shoemakers, that rest with our machine operators. And so I've got two guys that have been at Russell for over 50 years that started in high school, literally have been at Russell for over 50 years. They're kind of our backstops every time we're trying to make a change. Well, how did they do this 50 years ago? And then we'll go through an hour explanation of how it's changed or what hasn't changed or, yeah, that machine broke. So we had to do it this way and, you know, those sorts of things. And so documenting that, trying to, to get that knowledge out of, out of the heads of these amazing craftsmen. Because there's nobody else that does the sorts of construction processes that we do at Russell, it's not like we can go and hire somebody else, you know, that just has prior experience. We really have to do a lot of internal training and talent development. So what's the team look like these days? We've got a big mix. Uh, we've got guys, you know, down to you know, their early 20s, Good. all the way up to their 70s. When you have that person that realizes 
yeah, there's nine guys in here that they do the process, and that is Russell Moccasin. I do think people that are passionate about get excited about being part of that small group. Man, so it's nine people now? No, we've got 25 total employees, but in our bootmaker side, you know, we've got several guys that are our, our primary, you know, they do all the hand sewing. So every single pair of boots has to go through one of those guys. Of course. Are you looking to grow that? Absolutely. That's our biggest need right now, apart from, and I, and I say like this, it's really funny talking about the personnel needs because when we came in, that's one of the things that I identified as, as kind of one of the major things that we're going to have to do over the next couple of years. When you've got a, a business that's 125 years old, that's been hiring from the same talent pool, multi-generational in the same town for this long, you kind of run out of people in the local area, especially in a town of a little more than 5,000. I'm excited to see because I think there's so many people that are spread out geographically that have a love for this sort of thing. And yeah, we're, we're hiring on all fronts right now. So when you came in right out of the gate, you made some changes. Absolutely. Custom orders stopped gold. Old custom measurements were tossed out, I believe. We didn't toss any out, but we, uh, we stopped taking custom orders altogether. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you still have them. We do. I believe some prices went up. They did. There were reasons for all this, of course, but how has the reaction been to these changes and how have you contended with it? The way I explain it to people is when you look around this industry and you look at a company like Russell and, and you got to understand that Russell's customer base, most all of them for the last, I would say, 70 plus years have been on the sportsman side of things. So they're, they're hunters, they're outdoorsmen, they're hikers. When you come from that side of the industry, you, you, you have a little bit of some leeriness uh, when there's some changing of hands. Uh, you know, Filson, for example, or some of these different companies that everything changes, the products they loved are gone, the materials change, they're going towards a, a lower price point or trying to maintain the same price point, but the quality diminishes and they're trying to just survive or, or live off their name and hope that's enough. There's so many companies that our industry, specifically in the sporting side of things, have seen as soon as you hear change or as soon as you hear new, uh, the immediately defenses go up. And, and that's, that's understandable. I get that because that's exactly why I got involved was, hey, here's a brand that my family's been using for four generations, including me, that I've been a customer of. As another leather craftsman, somebody who studies old bags and, and old boots and had made boots before just for myself, I recognized how unique and special Russell was, and I wanted to preserve that. And that's, that's why I got involved. It, uh, it certainly is not convenient for me to be up here with my family and my other company in Birmingham. But when you have an opportunity to take a company like this that has been a multi-generational brand for families... And it's a very common thing. I, I was talking to a lady today that was talking about her husband died two years ago. Her son now wears his dad's pair of Russells. And that I hear that story over and over and over again, because when you make boots that last, like I said, I've got a pair of my great grandfathers that are over 70 years old and I've gone now through on its third generation. It's not necessarily just about the material aspect of that, but it's also about it's a connection to your past. It's a connection to your family. It's a tradition of sorts. I say all that to say that there's there's a lot of emotional ties for my industry, the sporting industry, uh, with the Russell brand. I don't think I've ever seen a group of people so loyal and defensive and, you know, getting so many messages. Don't you feel some this? You know, and <laughs> that that's like it's a common you wouldn't think it's that common, but I, I you know, I got a ton of those messages and it was it was funny to me because I respected that. 
It was like, yeah, I know exactly where you're coming from. No matter how many times you explain why you're doing something, uh, no matter how clearly you articulate that, people are not going to read. They're not going to listen because it's, it's based in emotion of, holy crap, somebody just bought my favorite company. It's probably going to go down the drain. It's probably going to become Filson. And then, you know, this goes to worst case scenario. It's taken some time for people to understand the why and, and see what we've been trying to do. Part of that has been, okay, why did we, we stop taking custom orders? Well, there was a 15-month backlog. They weren't catching up and they were getting further behind. And every time they quoted somebody, hey, it's going to be 15 months. Well, by the time it got 15 months, they're like, yeah, sorry, it's actually going to be closer to 20 months. But when you can't accurately represent to a customer or make a, a, a pretty accurate prediction, I mean, obviously there's crap happens. We're working with leather and if something goes wrong, I'm going to remake it. I'm not going to send you something that, <laughs> that isn't worthwhile. And so there's, there's things that can happen in that process. But if you can't even get close to estimating when you're going to be able to deliver a product, I don't feel right about taking an order. The other part of that is the custom production because of how broad it was, to give you an idea, there was 120 SKUs of different models that Russell produced. Within those models, you could say, well, I want, I want this boot, but I want it to be five inches tall rather than nine inches tall. And I want it to be single vamp, double vamp, triple vamp. I want it to have heel counters. I want it to have uh, a shank. I don't want it to have a shank. I want pour on. I don't want pour on. I want lacing studs. I want brown eyelets versus green eyelets versus blue eyelets. You know, the list kind of goes on. And so when you start doing the math, it becomes very, very apparent that you have hundreds of thousands of combinations with a very small workforce. Your employees are not touching that same product repeatedly, which means they're having to reinvent the wheel every time they pick up that product, which leads to a, a very unprofitable production process, uh, to say the least. That's where a lot of the changes came from was, okay, what, what are we really good at? What are the models that we do best in? What are the ones that we're best in right now? Because when you're working with machinery that's over 100 years old, the one machine on the planet that doesn't have any more replacement parts, when it goes down, <laughs> and that's the only one that you could use to make that product, well, we got to make a different product for a little bit until we figure out a solution to this. So there was a lot of, of that sort of problem solving of saying, okay, there are things that for the time being need to change that aren't always going to be permanent changes, but I would rather err on the side of simplifying and trying to perfect what we stay with uh, and then expand back out uh, than being too broad and being spread too thin. So that was kind of the reason for both the stop in, we, we stopped all custom orders and we also stopped all dealer orders. And the reason for that was We've got all these orders. We have 1,200 plus pairs that were, were waiting to be produced when we took over the company. Number one, I can't take any more orders. But number two, I've got to put every available resource towards getting those orders caught up as much as possible uh, and get them out the door. So that was kind of the two reasons for stopping taking orders and, uh, and then the reason for limiting what we were selling uh, as in-stock products during that period of time. It's tough though, man, right? How do you say no to that cash flow right when you take over a business? No company ever wants to do that. I'll say that. No company ever wants to say, no, I don't want your business. No, I don't want your money. But it came from a place of me of, I don't want to take an order 
that I don't know I can fulfill. I also don't want to take an order that costs the business money, that I'm actually losing money on your order because that doesn't do me any good because now I don't want to produce your product and it doesn't do you any good because your boot's going to get strung along until uh, you know it gets fixed. And so until your feet I get felt bigger. like it was <laughs> yeah, until your feet get bigger. So for me, it was just this thing of, okay, where the business is after COVID, after all the issues and losing production capacity, Somebody decides, hey, we're moving to North Carolina. If one of your craftsmen says that, and that's a major part of your production, it doesn't take much to, to really severely alter what you can output when you're in a production process like this. People don't realize that when everything that you do is done by hand, and we're not using lasting machines, we're not using any automated processes, it is directly correlated to where your people are at and what they're doing to that output. And it's not variable. You can't scale it up crazy fast and you can't uh, change it uh, in circumstances like that. And so for us, it was, hey, we've got all these orders that, that people took that they trusted us to fulfill. And our first and foremost responsibility is to get those boots done before we take another order. Because when we do take more orders, I want to know, one, what I have to charge for it. And two, when it's going to get delivered uh, as best as I can. I had a lot of people get mad at me for stopping taking orders because they wanted to get their order in. And I was like, buddy, like, I get it. <laughs> but, but please let me fix this problem first before I take your order. Well, that's like the crux of it, right? Russell was really a custom boot brand. Like that's yeah. what it was. That wasn't an offering. It seemed to be the bulk of the production. Yeah. And now the stock stuff you're doing and the pre-orders, they seem to be moving. That's great. But what a change for, like you said, a very passionate customer base. They believe in the product, but they also believe that they can get whatever the hell they want from you. Sure. Which is cool. I like that too. But my biggest thing is if I'm going to give you, you know, the world's your oyster, here's every opportunity possible. Either one, I have to charge for that or too, I, I, I definitely have to be able to deliver that. And the problem a lot of times was the custom process for most people, including me, because like I said, I was a customer before I became part of this brand. And for me going through and looking at all the possibilities, it was overwhelming. And then when you get into the number of vamps and heel counters versus not having heel counters versus those different things, to somebody who's coming and trying to make a decision, you'd spend years trying to figure out what you needed or what you wanted. And oftentimes when you did get that thing, it wasn't what you thought it was because there wasn't available information about that. And it, it led to a lot of uh, mistakes where, you know, the wrong color eyelet got stuck on there or, you know, things like that. And so in my mind, it's better to do a few things and do them really, really well and then figure out what you can do beyond that than try to do everything and try to be everything to everybody. And then the other side of that with the custom production was... During this period of time, this last eight months that we've been hammering away at these old custom orders, trying to get those out of the door. Okay, we're not taking any new custom orders. What what can we do during that period of time? What what can we do to get boots in people's hands? And standardized production was something we had already done for dealers uh, for for many many years. We had that product line down. What we said is okay, let's let's try to get every everybody together to do as much of the custom as possible. But to keep the business going and to keep things rolling, to, to help us make it through this period of time that we've said no to all these orders, let's produce stock because that can get boots into people's hands. So that was a really good way of doing it. The, the other thing with the old custom process, which I, I don't think a lot of people really understand, is Russell would do measuring at events within 12 to 15 months. 
your foot can change pretty long time span. The other problem is when you try on or when, when you go and you get fitted for a pair of boots in the old measuring system, you'd never tried on a pair of Russell's until they showed up at your doorstep. You had only stood on top of the box, got your tracings made, your measurements made. The problem to me with that is, as you well know from the many different companies that you've worked with and the different boot brands, is that every boot fits different. The lasts are different. The way they're designed, you know from what we've talked about that a lot of our boots are designed off of the Munson last, um, that they were very similar having that wider toe box. Now, somebody who's not used to that, then it's going to be very difficult for them to understand, especially when you're not there to walk them through, hey, this is what a proper fit is. This is what a proper fit isn't. The other part of that was that a large part of the custom orders we were taking were not custom orders that we measured. They were being measured at home. When you're making a custom boot, that's made for one person. And you're building up that last, you're adjusting that, you're adjusting the patterns. It's a very labor-intensive process, and you're making that boot for one person on the face of the planet. Maybe it fits a couple other people, but you're, you're making that custom for that person. If the boot comes in and they decide, yeah, it doesn't fit, well, now we've spent this amount of time producing a product for somebody. They're not happy because they've got a pair of boots that don't fit them. And that's the worst case scenario to me is for somebody to have spent a lot of money on a pair of boots that are obviously non-returnable. We can't help that you took your measurements wrong, but really on our side of things, I don't think we should expect people to be able to measure that accurately. You're not an expert in measuring. It's tough. The tracings are tough. I've done it a whole lot of times and I remain terrible at it. To me, the issue with footwear is footwear is all about volume yep. and it's all about where that volume is. Fit is also, I mean, I don't know if you've ever talked to, to Marcel Mersan, but he has a, has a really good quote that says, uh, you know, we fit the mind, we don't fit the foot. Yep. And uh, I love that quote because it's so true. It speaks to the highly subjective nature of footwear that some people get claustrophobic if it's a really tight fit. Uh, some people like that really tight fit. Even if you make a mathematically perfect boot for somebody's foot, that doesn't mean they're going to like the fit. What I've been trying to work on is figuring out, okay, how can we temper these different things and figure out a happy medium? Because obviously there was a lot of one-time problems uh, of, of the old custom route. And in order to do those now, if you talk to any other custom boot maker, because there wasn't, I don't know of any boot makers that were doing the full bespoke, last making, pattern changing, custom boot process that Russell was doing other than Russell and maybe a handful of uh, some Texas cowboy boot producers in the United States. It's very rare, especially for a more rugged type of footwear. I mean, some of the Pacific Northwest makers will do it and build right. up a last, but you need to go in to get that done. Sure. I mean, it's a tiny, tiny part of those businesses. There's so much cost, time cost wise, and the preparatory work doing that type of footwear that in order to be able to do that now, it would be it would be cost prohibitive for people. And because of the nature of the people who are our Russell customers, we still have very expensive footwear, and there's very good reason for that. Uh, the market's there, but I don't think it fits the time and place that we are in the business to do that full custom right now. Because like I said, if I'm going to do something, I want to be able to get it as close to perfect as, as we can in this artisan process. And I don't think that that process works. So the three different ways that we've created for people to order boots, and that's kind of happened in phases, is in stock, made to order, and then the new Will Russell custom custom shop that we launched about a week or two ago. So, I mean, in stock is obviously in stock. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. MTO has been a, a pretty, how long have people been doing MTO in this industry? It's been, been quite a while, I think. 
it's been the thing the last two or three years. And I think it was a good, solid pandemic Band-Aid. It's a great pandemic Band-Aid. It allows people options, shorter timelines, but doesn't stretch things out and, and require the complexity of full custom. And the custom process that we're doing now um, it's kind of a absolute reverse of the old custom way. So everybody who gets a pair of boots in that process has to get fitted by us. It's mandatory. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, I, I want to fit that person because at the end of the day, that is going to end up with a more satisfied customer knowing what that footwear is going to feel like. And when we do that, we'll take a brandic measurement to get a rough length and width. And then we have sizing boots that we've made in different lengths and widths. And we'll try people on in those sizing boots until we figure out, because all of our boots are made off the same last, dialing in the fit that feels good to them. And so it's a much more collaborative process between us and the customer of me working on trying to find the right shoe for their foot, them trying it on, walking around with it, my heel's slipping a little bit. Okay, well, let's let's work on the lacing real quick, because on Russell's, as you and I have talked about before, um, we have a very specific area that the laces have to be tied on. And if they're not tight there, it's it's not going to feel good on your foot. To show kind of what that looks like on a Russell, there's a lot more eyelet holes over the instep, and then they're spaced out more going up the ankle. These eyelets lower down are really what holds the boot on your foot. And the reason that they're over that instep is that the whole point of a moccasin is to allow your foot to splay and spread and be able to feel in the toe bed. So you don't want to be cramped around the sides. You want it to be nice and snug, but you don't want to be so tight the boot is actually holding onto the sides of your foot by the front up here. The instep of your foot, the, the waist, I guess we would call it, is really the only part of the foot that doesn't change in shape or volume when you're wearing or when you're sitting down and you're not putting load on your feet. Russell's were originally designed way back in the day. And if you look at we just digitized our archive and, and looking back into the old catalogs, they would explain, hey, you know, the lacing is tighter over the instep to be able to provide more pressure, more even pressure and, and lock around that instep because a moccasin is a full circle. So it's going all the way around your foot. And, and so really locking onto that instep at the waist of the, of the foot, kind of like a belt and then allowing that toe to be free. If people don't understand that and they're used to a normal pair of boots and their foot's shaking around in there, and they don't know that those first couple eyelets are really the key. You can have a perfectly great fitting boot and not know it because you just don't know the mechanics of that boot. So it allows me that opportunity to really walk through the fit of the boot and figure out, uh, go through different variables. Like if you're going to get a pair of like the engineer style, the, the Cavaliers or the, the Zephyrs, this is how the footwear is going to fit differently. This is the things that you need to take into consideration. And sometimes based on somebody's foot, I'll say, yeah, this is probably not a great footwear choice for what you want to do or for your footwear, uh, for your foot type. And so having those conversations allows us to remove a lot of doubts. It allows a customer to be able to get a feel for what their boot's going to feel like when it comes in and have a say-so in how that boot feels. And us not take 15 months to figure that out. You know, we can figure it out right then and there and then take our existing last library and build a pair of boots on that. So customs back, but you got to come in or see you at an event. That's right. Yeah, we'll be doing different events. Like I said, I'm, I'm based down in Birmingham. So I've got my office there um, and we travel quite a bit. So part of the reason that I'm still located in Birmingham is that a lot of our clientele is Eastern Seaboard, Southeast United States. And being located in Birmingham helps that because I can get to uh, wherever I need to be for an event or for a private fitting uh, pretty quickly. Okay, we got to take a break. You gave me 
don't filson this. What's the second most popular email you get these days? Ah, <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't know. Let me order a custom pair of boots over the internet. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, I'll give you 10 grand. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like that still people want that, even though you just told them no. Look, we'll be right back with Luke from Russell Moccasin. So, Luke, every once in a while, we play a little game on the show called GenFax. Jen works at Standard & Strange, our lovely sponsor this week. And man, is he a trickster. To keep up his image, he supplied us with three facts, only one of which is actually true. I'll read all three, and at the end of the episode, you'll have to guess which one it is before we reveal the true Gen Fact. Ready? You can do this. It's themed. Nice. Gen Fact number one, Russell Moccasin makes hunting boots. After years of being known only as the accurate but colloquial Dog who laughs at you when you suck. In the Nintendo game Duck Hunt, it was revealed in Super Smash Brothers of all places that the canine's name is actually Hieronymus. Gen fact number two, the word revamp, which today applies to anything whose appearance or form is updated, originally comes from 19th century French and literally means to repair the vamp of a shoe. Huh. Gen fact number three. Ernest Hemingway once wrote of his Russell Moccasin boots, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? I shall not, because you are a boot, and a deeply majestic one at that. What's the true gen fact? We'll find out at the end of the episode. I know which one I want to be true. (laughs) That's not how it works, Luke. I know, I know. And now, back to the shoe cast. We're back with Russell Moccasin CEO Luke Colby on the Shoecast. All right, so you already know this, Luke, but I have to admit to everyone, I guess, uh, I am an unabashed lover of Russell Moccasin's product. I have two pairs. They're two of my most worn and definitely two of my most comfortable pairs that I've ever owned. One of the things I love most about Russell is just how truly handmade these things are, how you use techniques that take something very simple at its core, this true moccasin construction, and address it in different ways for different purposes. I'd love to spend some time cranking through them all. The base moccasin that you make, then the double vamp, molded soles, all that. Whatever you want to do. We can delve into itsy-bitsy, intestinally small details, and I like it. We're the only practitioners of of what I dub (laughs) multi-layer moccasin construction. I mean, I think that's probably the easiest way to explain what we do that's dissimilar from stitch down that's dissimilar from welted um, that's really very distant even from simple moccasin construction as well it allows our footwear to be used in places that uh, moccasin construction typically would not and allows our footwear to last insanely longer than other types of footwear what's fun to me is when i go on facebook and people are sending me pictures of their 30 40 50 60 70 year old pair of russell boots that they're still wearing that's a testament that you can only have from being in business this long and having that many pairs of boots out there and actually seeing people get to use them and beat the crap out of them for that long. How, do, how does that actually get achieved and what's different about multi-layer moccasin construction than other types of footwear? It starts you know, with, with the vamp. And most people are, are most familiar with moccasin construction with something like a, a boat shoe um, or a loafer like I'm wearing right now. That It's a single layer of leather and it's, it's laid flat. And then it's molded up around the toes, so it's pulled up and lasted. 
And typically, most moccasins, other than Russell moccasins, are put together with a butt seam. And a butt seam, as a, a Michael Christie, I can't get him out of my mind now. Butts are perfectly fine. Butts are perfectly fine. We, I love butts. We do butt seams uh, as well. I love butts, yeah. Butt seams are perfectly fine uh, in the right circumstance. What makes Russell different is back in, uh, back in the, the 1920s, Russell Patton did what's called the overlap stitch. And the overlap stitch is a way of waterproofing or semi-waterproofing a hand moccasin stitch on the toe piece. Because what you've done on a single vamp, you've, you've laid that layer flat, you've molded it up. And when you do a butt seam, you're just taking those two edges, pulling them together and then on a typical seam, you know, you've got essentially a crack that runs around there that if you were to submerge that, uh, immediately water is going to go through that. There's no way to pull it tight enough that it's ever going to be water resistant. The overlap seam kind of uses a pinching method of your hand stitching. It can't be done by a machine. There's a lot of, I've seen machine replicas of this or pre-punched replicas of this where it's like a welted construction where it's open on the bottom and then they replicate the seam, but it's not done the same way, but you lose all of the, the functionality of it at that point. It's done for looks, but you're starting on the outside and then you're, you're actually hooking in and creating a circular stitch coming back up through on the top of the toe piece. And then on a saddle stitch, which we use to actually do the stitching portion of that, you're coming through. And then when you're, you're actually taking those needles and they're passing each other inside the leather, when they come out the other side, you loop one underneath the other and it creates an overhand knot like you would in Boy Scouts. But it does that on every single stitch in every single knot. And what that does is one, it pinches the leather, uh, the vamp in between the two pieces of the toe piece. The other thing that it does is that knot keeps that thread from unraveling should a stitch get cut or worn through. If you were to wear through that stitch, it's not going to come unraveling back and the shoe open up. So the overlap seam really was kind of the starting point of taking the moccasin construction method and making it applicable for outdoor use, for, for really heavy outdoor use. Taking it from that level, I mean, a moccasin construction, what's great about it is that most other constructions on the inside, when you get to, this is an example, this is what we call a double stack midsole, which I'll get to later. But this leather layer here, just like you can see on this loafer, is what we're stitching. And I guess it would be called in, in most other construction methods, a Blake stitch. That's Blake stitching through the inside into the midsole material. Obviously, you're pulling everything up. So at this point, this is not a waterproof boot or shoe because you've got those stitch holes running through the inside and through into the, uh, the midsole material. What's great about the moccasin construction before we really get into multi-layer moccasin, because it comes from the bottom up, it's able to hug that instep much better. And the sidewalls of the boot are not up and down. They're not 90 degrees. On a welted construction, on a uh, stitch down construction, on many construction methods, the sidewall where it meets the midsole or the welt is 90 degrees angle. Your foot is not a 90 degree angle. It is curved on all sides and it has those, those chamfers. And so moccasin construction is able to hug the underside of your foot and move and, and conform as you're walking much better to the natural movements of your body. But moccasin construction in a lot of situations as a single vamp is great. But when you start encountering large quantities of water or mud, you've got to have more around your foot. And so what, what Russell does, which is very unique, is, is that multi-layer moccasin construction. And there's several different ways of doing that. If you look on the website, on the process page, there's four different types. You've got single vamp, which I just showed you. You've got single vamp with a molded sole. 
you've got double vamp and you've got double vamp with a molded sole often called triple vamp. Double vamp is, is most similar to single vamp construction because it looks almost identical from the outside. Uh, it looks about the same, but on the interior of the boot or shoe, we put uh, a leather booty called the inner vamp. And the inner vamp looks like this, and it's lasted the same way. We wet it and we last it over the same last that we're going to use inside the boot. The difference is the inner vamp is typically made of a silicone tan leather for water resistance. The seams on the inner vamp are going to run opposite to the exterior seams. So on the exterior of this, you've got the seams running along the ridges of the side of the foot. On the inner vamp, those are going to run directly over the top and then on the front around the toe piece there. And what that does is when this is placed in and laminated inside of another boot, those seals are, are those seams are sealed in kind of the same way that you lay bricks. When you lay bricks, you don't lay them all just straight up one on top of the other like this. You're staggering those in order to create strength. And, and it's the same way with water resistance is you're making sure those seams don't touch in order that if water were to seep through um, that hand seam and go through into the leather, because a lot of times the leathers we use in the exterior are not a waterproof leather. We're using leathers that are best for wear resistance. We're using leathers that are great for looks like Chrome XL um, that patina really nicely. But in order to get performance out of that, that's where the inner vamp comes in. That's laminated on the inside. If water were to seep through any of the seams or actually soak through the leather, this is what's there to keep that from happening. And the most important part of that is on the underside, it's still a moccasin construction meaning that you're standing on one piece of leather and that piece of leather seals the seams of the Blake stitches that go through the bottom of a moccasin. And so it's, it's another, you're sealing the bottom seams, you're sealing the top seams. And from that ankle joint down, you're creating uh, as waterproof of a seal as you can in an all leather boot construction. Any questions? <laughs> I can go on into, uh, this is a, a boot. This is like a, I think this is a 12 inch dude, but this is this is the vamp once we've actually molded that and lasted it and prepared it for the inner vamp to put in. This is one of the old inner vamps. One of the changes that's been uh, kind of one of the ones I've been most excited about is used to they would use like these leather board heel counters. And we've started doing completely hand molded vegetable tanned leather heel counters like they did way back in the day. It's just a fantastic feel around your heel. In a double vamp construction, this would be stitched down to your midsole first. And then you would put the inner vamp in before sewing the toe piece in. So that sits inside there. And then this would be glued in. And then the toe piece would be, this would be trimmed. Toe piece would be put on. Guess it would be sewn in. And it's, it's sealing off those seams because the stitches that would be going to the bottom are now sealed with that inner vamp. The other really neat thing about moccasin construction and using it for outdoor footwear is that because there's no seam here on the side, there's nothing to bust through. So we hardly ever have to do anything to the vamp over the course of the lifetime of that boot because there's nothing to blow out. You can't blow out the side of a moccasin unless you just absolutely wear through it. There's no, there's no seam there. There's no weak point when it attaches to the sole. And the way I explain it to people is it's kind of the difference between unibody car design and a body on frame design like a Defender or a truck or, or whatever. You're isolating the top and the bottom where there are two separate things that can be separated and fixed or maintained independently and then put back together. And if you were to cut off the actual sole that goes on there, that you're still standing on a piece of leather means that you have a lot more structure and strength without adding additional weight because 
there's no filler material, there's nothing up underneath your foot to take up space, you're still as close as possible to the ground and maintaining uh, the maximum strength. And, and probably the easiest way to go from here to triple vamp construction, that, that double vamp with a molded sole, is to show you this is a this is a molded sole. So we, we last this around a size up from whatever the boot's gonna be, because obviously it's gonna go on the exterior, you're adding another layer. And so we last that, you can see the, the Blake stitching down in there. And then this is a leather, uh, this is not a leather, this is a, a rubber midsole, which we typically use when we're doing like an, an uh, EDF foam layer between this and the sole. Um, most of the times, if it's going to be uh, a non-EDF layer, we do what's called a, a double stack midsole. And this functions, this is typically when we're doing a wedge. And on a wedge, obviously you don't need to shank. Anything that's got a heel, you, you want some stiffness there where the heel block's gonna be. And so this, this double stack midsole, one, it increases the resolability because we're able to, to bond directly to that rubber. And you can see the stitches that are actually going down. So this piece would be stitched to the boot. This is stitched down to the rubber midsole. And then the rubber midsole is glued to the outsole. And so we can, we can use that rubber midsole several times for resoling. And then when we do actually have to touch this leather midsole, we can sew on another rubber midsole and then repeat the process. So when you're dealing with a boot that's 20, 30, 40, 50 years worth of resoles, you're trying to build that in to be as simple as possible for that cobbler to do. The other thing that that does is kind of like a bow. You, you want your foot to be able to, to roll and have some flexibility there in a moccasin construction. You don't want it to be so stiff that it, it keeps you from flexing throughout foot, but you want it stiff at that um, right after the, the end step where your foot's hanging out in space where there's a heel. Forces it not to be able to bend in any one area in an in a acute angle. And so you're creating that curvature down to the ball of the foot that way. And then in between the layers, typically we, we put pour on in between those layers to give a cushion layer because uh, otherwise it's leather on leather on leather on rubber and you don't have any layer there to really take shock absorption. And if you're a hiker or somebody who's a mountaineer going downhill on your heels all day long is not fun just on leather or just on rubber. And so having a, a shock absorption layer in there is, is really nice. And so that's, that's where that triple vamp comes into play. Believe it or not. I have a question. Yeah. You said that the inner vamp is laminated in there. What does that mean in, in function? This is a pretty good example. So this is a, this is a triple vamp boot. This is um, one that's same as this, but actually sewn all together. Up underneath the toe piece, you can see that, that inner vamp stitched in there. And right above the line of the vamp here, there's a stitching line that runs from here around the heel. You can see it crossing heel right here so it goes all the way around the heel and then back over here and so what that does is we're stitching that inner vamp inside and then trimming off the excess so you have a smooth transition in between the upper quarters and then the lower and then the toe piece this is actually getting laminated underneath the toe piece and then the toe piece is being formed over over this because any stitches at that point would start puncturing the toe piece and then decreasing your water system got it it's in those areas, and when you look inside the inner vamp, there's no punctures on the bottom of it. There's no punctures in the sides of it, and that's kind of the key is that each of those layers are independent. The seams are offset from one another so that they're not facing, and that's what creates that, that water resistance. So if you see on the outside, this is, this is the order of operations. You've got a molded sole, which is sewn down to your midsole. You've got an inner vamp, 
which is sewn to your outer vamp. And then before the inner vamp is put in, you sew the molded sole to the outer vamp and then put the inner vamp inside. So you're puncturing that outer vamp when you put a molded sole on, but then you're sealing that again on the inside with the inner vamp. Yep. 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 It, it becomes very complicated because when you're doing this sort of construction, you're having to do it when it's already put together. It's not open on the bottom where we can get up inside here and do all this stuff. You're, you're kind of sewing, sewing yourself into a corner for lack of a better term. You're, you're literally sewing a sphere around your, your place that you've got to sew, which is why there's no way to do this construction without hand sewing that toe piece. Because when we hand sew the toe piece now on top of this, we're not going to puncture that inner vamp. We're only going to go through the outer vamp and the toe piece. And so you still got that inner vamp, which is completely smooth on the inside and hasn't been punctured. It's an order of operations nightmare that requires us to use very specialized sewing machines to get down inside there and sew this because whereas most other boots constructions, it's completely open underneath here and you just have a welt on the edge. It's three layers of leather thick before you even get to the midsole. So that's complicated. And then double vamp or a single vamp with a molded sole is just like our sporting clay checker. So it's a single vamp and it's got the molded sole and you can see, you can see the stitching on the inside there going around. So it brings what I call the water line up a little bit. But the main thing that a molded sole does is it takes the stitching off the bottom, moves it to the sides and stiffens the bottom of the shoe. It's kind of like a heel counter for the whole foot. So it really does not have a ton to do with water resistance and much more to do with protection of the bottom of the foot. And to be clear, the molded sole, which is something that I was a little confused on myself until we were talking recently, actually, uh, is something that another brand might call a double bottom. To a degree, and, and a double bottom, or you'll see some companies call it like a bumper or like a mud guard or something. Typically, those are open on the bottom. So they, they just kind of come up from the edge of the boot up, and they're more for show than anything. A molded sole is most similar, kind of like what you were talking about, that if you've ever had like a camp mock that's got a full leather bottom, that's a molded sole. It's, it's, a, it's a layer that's been completely formed around the bottom that doesn't have any punctures and it's still a single vamp layer that you're standing on, but it comes and, and molds up the side. Uh, and, and it comes from, the terminology comes from when it was the actual sole before they started adding, you know, a technical sole on the bottom of this or, you know, a vibram or something like that. This was the sole, you know, you were standing on that leather layer and that's what you were using to, to travel on. So obviously there's a lot of talk about waterproofing and some of these things were figured out a, a very long time ago. And that speaks to Russell's core as an outdoorsman's brand, as a sportsman's brand, and a huge portion of your business is for that market and has been forever. What are some of the unique challenges of addressing that market as there's more technical footwear, obviously, that is also waterproof as Gore-Tex, whatever, and it's not just, oh, they're Russells and my dad wore them or, oh, they're Russells and they're beautiful and not something you made on a computer. I mean, how do you contend with that in, in 2023 against the field? If you look at all the different boot brands out there and the different types of products, there's kind of two camps currently. On one hand, you've got your heritage footwear, which is typically very, very heavy. It's well-built, lots of good materials, typically hard break-ins because you've got very thick oak leather midsoles, kind of like what we do, but typically that's the insole. That's what you're standing on top of and having to break in. And because there's so much filler material up underneath the foot, you've not only got to break in that midsole, but you've also got to break in everything in between you and the actual outsole. And then over time, that's going to break down and you have to replace that like cork. 
not many people are taking that and doing very long distance hikes. It's, it's great for, for heavy duty use when you don't have to walk very far. On the other hand, in the kind of hiking community, in the um, alpinist mountaineering, long distance hiking like the Appalachian Trail, which ironically, we were the first boot to complete the Appalachian Trail back in 1948, this year's 75 years. Today, you know, people are typically wearing something like an Ultra, uh, or they're wearing a Vasque, uh, or several of these different, um, you know, La Sportiva, Solomon, these very high-tech, ultra-lightweight brands, but they're wearing out two, three, four pairs in a 2,000-mile trek. The reason that the hunting community has stuck with Russell's and preferred with Russell's so so long is because it uniquely has the challenges of both of those. You're having to go very far out into the backcountry to hunt uh, for certain types of hunting. You've got those really, really heavy wear situations where you're not on a nicely manicured trail, you're off trail, and you don't get to necessarily decide what the terrain dictates. And so when you're in those situations, you can afford a little bit more weight to know that your shoe's not going to blow out when you're 14 miles away from your vehicle um, and, and you've got to get back. When you're, you're really far out there, I mean, I, th- I think some great examples are guys like Wyman Meinzer from Texas, who's the state photographer of Texas, and he wears nothing but Russell's. He can afford whatever he wants. He's a uh, you know, professional photographer. He travels all over doing nature photography, but his terrain and being so far out there in the boonies He's willing to, to wear something for that protection and knowing that it's not going to fail him that also has the athletic components of uh, a modern hiking boot. That lightweight but high durability is, is where Russell is in that mix. I think it has a unique history of extreme durability, extreme longevity. The resolability is obviously there, but in a package that's comparable to a lot of technical footwear. You're never going to be as light as something that's all foam and itty bitty little amount of tread. But when the ultimate goal is to get there and get back, that matters much less than having the dependability. That's kind of the unique space. I would, I would say that we're kind of in a, a unique cross section of the heritage and, and technical footwear markets. So smooth transition. At the same time you're addressing that market, I'm personally thrilled to see that there's this interest from a brand perspective for Russell growing within that you know, let's call it heritage boot community, just people who are just really into wonderful boots, right? Sure. I think anybody who appreciates great footwear is someone who can appreciate Russell. And it feels like there's a renewed accessibility through not just making custom boots that you have to wait a year and a half for, even some of these marketing changes that you've made. Sure. Is that a conscious decision? It's it's absolutely conscious. And, and it's part of that is there are more outdoors people that can benefit from Russell's than just the hunting group. I'm a hunter. I'm a sportsman. I grew up in that, but I also love hiking and I love backpacking. I love fly fishing. And, and those are all things that I really enjoy. You can wear a pair of Russell's inside, but a Russell's meant to be worn outside. When the pavement ends, that, that's where our country begins. I feel like there's so many different companies who are inspired by outdoor footwear or inspired by this. With Russell, that is our playground. That's our backyard. And so I wanted to increase the scope of, of our marketing on that front and be able to cater to a broader audience of people who appreciate what goes into making a pair of Russell's. Um, because this one is all about just the technical, you know, whether or not your boot can do that hike or that hunt or whatever. 
you also lose the artisanship too. Not necessarily that, that their artisanship is gone, but people aren't looking at the artisanship of the boot. And so I feel like the boot community uniquely has that perspective of loving the boots for what they're capable of, what they're proven to be capable of, but also loving the boots for what goes into making them and the unique aspects of the design and construction of our footwear. A lot of the products, the sporting clays chukka that we've done, um, the the felly that we did, we relaunched the Highland chukka. There's a lot of boot models that I'm kind of pushing into that market of, of saying, hey, you know, we can make a boot that still has all the attributes of a Russell that's one of our classic models, but we can do something funky with it and we can do something interesting and something that can also be worn day to day. That's been the goal is to, to broaden our demographic, to broaden our customer base and be able to get more people into a pair of Russells. Uh, I think the best compliment is probably one of yours that we we're talking in you're talking about how in between breaking in other pairs of boots, you put on your Russells. That's exactly what a pair of Russells is. <laughs> it's it's true. It's true. Um, <laughs> you know, when the heels get all beat up, my six inch triple vamp bird shooters, I mean, they don't even have a heel counter yeah. in there. So you're not just banging, banging. Yeah. Most of the walking I do is in the woods with the dogs, just uncut woods. And that's where I'm often beating up new pairs of boots and shoes. And it's, you know, it can be nice to have a break. But yeah, and when you get into this and plenty of listeners of the show, I imagine feel the same way. The idea of something that was built for a purpose and continues to be built that way and for you may be overbuilt or you're not using it for that exact intended purpose. Sure. Is wonderful. Like you can just feel this real connection to these products and you know that it's certainly never going to let you down. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's just this incredible feeling of confidence that comes from it. And especially once you start to understand how they're made and why, and you can interpret that in your own way and love them for some of the same reasons, but also for some of your own personal reasons. You don't have to use it and and, and beat the absolute crap out of it and go take it and, and figure out what the limit of it is to appreciate it and enjoy it. It can be a great pair of footwear that you wear for the rest of your life. And I'm perfectly, perfectly happy uh, if that's all it ever achieves, we're still going to make it so it can do whatever it needs to do. Making models that cater to more daily usage. We don't all have the opportunity to go on super long expeditions or go hike the Appalachian Trail. Um, but having the capability in our gear to to know that we could if if we so chose, that's uh, that to me is not a bad thing. It's good to have it as a fallback just in case you end up hiking a few thousand miles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just I mean, you just decide. Is there friction between those two customer bases and how you serve them? Like from a pure usage versus general lifestyle, I just love great boots and, and how they're put together standpoint from a marketing perspective internally. How do you navigate that? There would be friction there if we said, okay, we're going to make a, a less than Russell, a, a cheaper Russell, a, you know, we're going to take away the aspects of, of a Russell that make it unique and try to use the brand or the general look and try to make something that appeals to a broader base that's not using it for the most rough and tough application. If we were to do something like that, that's where I could see a lot of friction and, and, and rightly so, because at that point, it, it's not a pair of Russells anymore. But to me, those two groups of people can, can live in that same space and, and not step on each other's toes. And a lot of times I think it's, it's a lot of fun because I get to, to poke at one group or the other and have fun with it. I mean, for the, the other day, you know, in the sporting community, 
rolling up your denim jeans as, you know, the, the cardinal sin, you know, and I think you saw, you probably saw that. And I was like, you know, <laughs> you tagged me in it. <laughs> I did. Uh, and by the time I got there, there were a whole bunch of comments being like, I would absolutely <laughs> never cuff my jeans under any circumstances. Yeah. Anyone who does crazy. So I didn't end up saying anything because all my <laughs> jeans are cuffed. And, I mean, some of that goes back to my sneaker days where my stance was like, what are you doing wearing high top yeah. Air Force Ones if you're not showing them off? Let's see those things. Maybe I'll get back in there now that it's kind of right. quieted down and nobody will see. Creating that overlap, drawing those two groups of people together. And there are a ton of people that are sportsmen and outdoorsmen, but they also have fine denim and they want to show it off. And they're not afraid of that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so to me, I think it's fun because... It's two groups of people that I personally fit into. I love really nice things. I, I obsess over quality. I can appreciate craftsmanship, um, whether it's in my discipline or somebody else's. Bringing those two groups of people together feels really natural because I live in both spaces. It seems like expanding beyond that, you're maybe doubling, let's just call it your addressable market. How big do you think Russell's should be? Russell is going to be, I mean, currently we're around that 3,000 pairs a year mark. We've been in prior years between that five and 10,000 pairs a year mark back when we had a larger workforce. That's where I want us to be ultimately is being that, that five to 10,000 pairs a year mark, because I think beyond that, there's not necessarily a reason in, in, a, in a footwear company like this. And, and what I have to explain to people is there are not economies of scale after a certain point. There is not a machine that can do what we have to do by hand at a certain point, whether it's the first pair of boots or the thousandth pair of boots, it still takes the same amount of time. And if you build up too far, then now all of a sudden you have all these costs that are inherent in the business that are less variable. And so building a business model that is sustainable for the future, and in my opinion, also means knowing the limits of, of where the brand hits its peak efficiency and, and also hits its peak of, we don't have to be Red Wing. I, I don't have to produce uh, hundreds of thousands of pairs of footwear to feel like you know we've done our jobs. And I feel like when you get to that point, you can't have that attention to detail. And I can't go in the shop and you know go figure out what's going on or, or work with our team. And so um, we're going to keep it ultimately small. It's going to be bigger than it is now. But I, I don't feel like Russell needs to be that massive brand, nor do I want it to be. Because at some point, if you're trying to do that to lower costs, which are not necessarily possible in this sort of production process, what's the point of scaling? Typically, the point of scaling for a company is to achieve higher economies of scale uh, to be able to you know, lessen the cost of marketing efforts and be able to, to reach more customers and create more profit. But if you don't have those economies of scale and it still takes so much manpower to make each pair, um, I would rather us keep it small and, and focused. Uh, than, than get too big. And, and, you know, typically bad things happen when you get too big. I've heard about that. <laughs> don't filson that shit, Luke. Don't you dare. Remember, and don't filson it. <laughs> what you should do is come to our boot camp event this October in Brooklyn, which you will be, and we're incredibly excited about. We are coming. What can Russell fans, old and in the making, expect to see there? We're going to have sizing sets. Uh, we're going to take custom orders. We're going to have lots of stock on hand uh, to show people the different models that we've got. And mainly, uh, get your feet on uh, on some Russells and get to walk around and, and see what the difference is because it's a, it's a different feel. It's a different type of footwear. 
we're excited. I'm, I'm really excited to, to meet all the other different brands. I feel like Russell, because of, uh, again, going back to that market that we've catered to for the last 70 plus years, it's been isolated because we were the bootmaker. We are the bootmaker to the sporting industry. And now getting to turn around is like, hey, there's there's more people out here that make boots and getting to meet people and swap stories about angry ornery machines. Uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. I think there will be ample opportunity for all of that. <laughs> Can't wait to see you, man. There actually is one more thing. Sure. It's time to reveal the true gen fact to refresh. <sighs> gen fact number one, Duck Hunt. Duck is named Hieronymus. Gen fact number two, revamp. Originally meant quite literally to revamp a shoe. Gen fact number three, Hemingway said Russell's are not a summer's day, but still good. What do you think? I think I've got to go with revamp. Revamp, huh? All right. We've always been pulling these facts out of an envelope. This is not just some mail that uh, I'm repurposing. Oh, wow. This page intentionally left blank. You got it. It's a revamp. Awesome. <laughs> I like the Ernest Hemingway throw in there. It's, uh, yeah, it's nice, but uh, unfortunately, I didn't fall for it. It was not his prose. I love the idea that everybody back in the day, at least in France, knew what a vamp was. Me too. I mean, that's a well-educated populace there. We need to need to work on that. I think a lot of people used to know a lot more about shoes back in the day. <laughs> you got it. Nice work. Appreciate it. Huge thanks to Standard and Strange for sponsoring the episode. You're great. Join the Stitch Down Discord today to support this podcast production and get to know, like, everybody before our boot camp event this October in New York City. Tickets are $10 off on Stitch Down Boot Camp with code Shukas, but you don't have to scream it. You can you can just type it. Most importantly, thank you, Luke, for coming on. This is a good one, man. Really good. Thank you. I enjoy it. Hopefully, hopefully we provided some clarity, and uh, I'm excited to see you guys this fall, and looking forward to meeting a lot of your viewers as well. All right, man. Can't wait. That's it for this episode, the first of season nine. Keep listening slash watching. We'll have more. Take care of your shoes. We'll see you next time. <laughs>